Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 208. My name is Terry Frost, and this time around I'm doing political films. We're doing 1949's All the King's Men, starring Brody Quarleford, John Ireland, and Mercedes McCambridge. Then we're going forward to 1976 for All the President's Men, starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, and we'll get the show begun. Paleo Cinema Podcast appears every two weeks. It's a podcast of classic movie appreciation. The only rule we have is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old. Uh, feedback's important to podcasters, so if you'd like to leave reviews on iTunes, they'd be very welcome. You can also send voicemails or emails to feedbackpaleo at gmail.com or go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You can even frame me up on Facebook as long as you're nice and civil and don't spit on the carpet. Just be aware that the podcast does have adult themes at times, so just be aware of that. Uh, anyway, I'll get on with the show now, and um, I hope you enjoy it. So how is everyone? Uh, as you know, I took two weeks off the podcast to get the uh, YouTube channel started, and it seems to be going okay. I'm not getting too many views now, but... Hopefully a lot of the people listening to this will have a go at it. I'll post the link in with the show notes on the podcast. Uh, it's an interesting thing for me to do. I've got, had a learning curve with it as well. There are a few things uh, I had to learn. The first one was that uh, I had to learn the new software I'm using to edit audio and video. So putting all of that together. So I've got some software called Corel Video Studio X10 which has got a learning curve to it, but there are a lot of good tutorials for it on YouTube, oddly enough. And so I spent part of the two weeks wrangling the software and put together two uh, videos over the last two weeks. The first one was my first top five, sorry, not the first five, top five movies by Hollywood about Hollywood. I put that out a fortnight ago. And last week I put out another one, which is my top ten TV westerns of the 1950s and 1960s. As I said, the show notes will be there on the podcast show notes so that you can uh, click the link, subscribe, hopefully, do a like on it, you know, hit the like button if you like it, and even put some comments in there. The more you do that, the more it's going to get visibility. It's something I'd like to diversify in. Um, a good friend of the podcast, Morris, was concerned because he thought I was giving up podcasting for vlogging and doing youtube videos and i'm not doing that i think that two of them can go hand in hand in fact there may even be an opportunity to adapt one of the podcasts to youtube and upload it there and then get more people to see it so there are those possibilities um, out there it's just a matter of me deciding when to do it and also getting the time to do it uh, i do the videos run less than 20 minutes each but they take about two or three times as long to do as the podcast. I've got to find the video to go with the audio. I've got to edit video and audio together. I've got to compile the lot and upload it. There are a lot of different aspects to that that are complicated. And I've also got to do transitions, which the software makes pretty easy. And so I put the first video up two weeks ago. Here's the interesting part. Suddenly get copyright violation notices from three companies. One's a small production company in Belgium, of all places, and it blocked the video from everywhere except Belgium, France, Luxembourg, and Canada. I don't know why, but they did that. The second one, oddly enough, was a violation from the WWE, 
which I believe is some form of wrestling organization. And the third one was from Paramount Pictures, saying I had violated their copyright. Now, I did my homework after that. I was, I was quite shocked. In fact, I was, I was pretty rattled by this. So what I did then was I did my homework. Uh, I responded to YouTube saying, I believe it's fair use because I'm reviewing these movies and encouraging people to watch them. And I don't believe I breached the copyright. So I put that out there. The little production company in the Netherlands has a Twitter feed. So I put a link up to the violation and said, listen, guys, why are you doing this? That one I got an answer to in about a few days where they withdrew the violation. The second one, the WWE came in a few days after that, and then finally Paramount backed off as well. So (laughs) there's no copyright violation in that video of five favourite Hollywood movies about Hollywood. But I was very, very rattled when it came through and quite distressed because I'd spent literally 24 hours of effort getting that together and, and really kind of fried my brain putting it all together. And then suddenly that shit comes down and people can't watch the video. I was so distressed. So I kind of, you know, got back on the horse uh, and put out the second video, which is the top 10 westerns of the 60s and 70s on TV that I liked. And that one I had no problems with. I think that what happened, based on what I know from friends like Luke Withers, who um, has been on the podcast... Luke uh, advised me that it's an algorithm that goes through new YouTube videos to look for copyright violations and then automatically and robotically chucks them through and YouTube responds to them. And then at some stage in the future, when I kick my back legs at them, so a human being looks at it and goes, nah. So that's the process. Uh, hopefully it won't happen again, but if it does, I know what to do about it. I believe that I'm using these things fairly and I'm encouraging people to watch these things, which is the thing. If I was just doing this to diss them and give them a lot of shit and all that kind of stuff, I could understand somebody getting arced up about it. But um, I've gone through that process and I've gone through that um, initiation by fire. And so I will be putting up the videos fairly regularly. I'll try to make it weekly or fortnightly, just depending on how things go. I may do some video logging as well. There are a few different things I want to do. It's a very open format. And in some ways, it's much more open than even um, doing a podcast is. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's a new challenge and it's a new um, headspace to get myself around. It's a new creative outlet. And that's not a bad thing to do. I'm, I'm really going to have fun with that. But it was fraught with danger right at the beginning. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you for bearing with me while I, I went on that little adventure, which, uh, as I said, is ongoing. So um, we'll get back on track with the podcast now. And what have I been watching over the two weeks that I have spent doing other things? Uh, not a hell of a lot of movies, really, given that it's a two-week period, because I've been watching and learning from a lot of YouTube videos. Because, you know, you learn by imitation and then you kind of find your own path. So the things I have been watching, I did watch Hidden Figures, the movie uh, about the women who did a lot of the calculations for the uh, NASA, early NASA missions, which stars Janelle Monet, um, Octavia Spencer, and Taraji P. Henson, along with a little help from Kevin Costner. Yeah, I liked it. I mean, the story arc's pretty much a familiar one, but it does it very well. It gives us a piece of history that we haven't seen before. 
and I really liked it. Um, it. It's an inspiring story. It unveils a part of the history of that time that really hasn't been covered before, which is a good thing. They do cut a bit fast and loose with the historical accuracy, but the essence of it's there, and um, it, it does work really well. And it's got humour, it's um, got pathos, it's got Kevin Costner with a sledgehammer. Um, yeah, if you haven't seen Hidden Figures, I definitely recommend that you do it. It was an enjoyable movie viewing experience. Uh, I went back and actually saw a movie directed and written by somebody who's blocked me on Facebook, Alex Proyas. And it's Gods of Egypt, which I watched with Sal. Uh, filmed a lot of it in Australia. It's got some really weird casting in it. One of the gods is played by Brian Brown. Another one's played by Jeffrey Rush. Um, it's just totally over the top. Um, Gerard Butler is really bad as the main villain. And, uh, yeah, but on the other hand, it's got some really beautiful imagery. I mean, the special effects and the imagery on it are marvellous. It's a an Egyptian cosmos, an Egyptian mythical cosmos. And it does it really well. Uh, there, there are so many good aspects to this film and so many bad aspects to this film. You don't quite know where you are with it. But if you're in the mood for a meathead action film, which is a little bit different, then you could you know, you give it a go, see how you like it. Uh, it's, it's a little bit of fun. Uh, then I saw a documentary, which I've been looking forward to for about a year called That Guy Dick Miller, which is about the character actor Dick Miller who'd done a million Roger Corman films and a whole bunch of other stuff. He was in Terminator. He was in everything. If you don't know who Dick Miller is, then you need to look up Dick Miller right away. And it's a fun, it's an affectionate um, tribute to him. There's an interview with him and his wife. Uh, it's it's just a fun documentary about um, a kind of pop culture cult movie hero, in a sense. He He's done feature roles, he's done little cameos, he um, starred in some Roger Corman films, which I've got to go back and revisit, particularly things like Buckets of Blood. And, uh, yeah, he, se he seems like a, a nice guy. Yeah, he, he doesn't suffer fools gladly, but really uh, a little bit of fun revisiting the universe of Dick Miller. Uh, and, you know, if you haven't seen it, definitely see it. It's called That Guy, Dick Miller. Uh, then I rewatched Doctor Strange with Sal because she hadn't seen it. And yeah, it's um, it's a fun Marvel movie. I enjoyed it. I, I like the trippiness of it. It's got the usual um, origin story arc, which is always a bit of a burden for a film. And uh, Chewie to a Ledger 4 is very good. Benedict Cumberbatch is very good. There's that problem with the casting of Tilda Swinton playing the Ancient One, which I think could have been overcome by casting somebody else. Possibly somebody from somewhere um, a little bit further east than Tilda Swinton is, if you know what I mean. And I just hit the mic cord there. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, so nonetheless, I, I do like Doctor Strange. I'm welded on with the Marvel stuff, even though I hear bad things about Iron Fist, which is coming out on Netflix in a couple of hours, and I will be binging it. Regardless of the PR, um, I'm welded on with Marvel. Uh, in the same way that some of my friends are welded on with Star Wars stuff. But I'll, I'll watch Iron Fist and I'll, I'll let you know what I think next time around. Uh, then I watched a Ted B. Michaels film, which is very bad. Astro Zombies from the mid-1960s. The last movie done by the actor Wendell Corey, who died of cirrhosis of the liver. And if you see Wendell Corey's performance in this film, it ain't too surprising. Um, it also stars John Carradine. 
as a mad scientist and a bunch of other kind of minor actors. It's incredibly low-budget uh, 1960s California movie-making. But I picked up a cheap copy of it in Sydney when I was up there last month, and uh, I thought I'd watch it. And, yeah, it's, um, it's as trashy and as bad as you think. But if you haven't seen Astro Zombies, you probably should. Um, the only other thing of note that I've watched is Sal and I made a mistake when we went to see this film. We saw Kong Skull Island which is the new King Kong movie, which um, stars Tom Hiddleston, Brie Larson. It's got actually a good cast. Brie Larson's in there. John C. Riley, um, John Goodman, uh, a bunch of other people. And, yeah, it's a good giant monster movie. It harks back to classic kind of um, monster movies. You know, the, a team comes into a lost land and uh, their transport gets smashed up. And they encounter giant monsters. It's it's fun for what it is. It really does kind of work. The CG and um, effects are fantastic. When Kong is covered in water from being immersed in water, the rivers of water pouring off this enormous ape, and he's the biggest King Kong ever, by the way, is fantastically detailed. You can believe it. It's um, really good. There are some great ancillary monsters in this, particularly a spider which kicks ass, and um, the main villain monsters are quite nasty. The uh, fight between Godzilla and the big bad monster is done very well. Uh, even though it's um, there's a lot of water at the time because they're fighting kind of you know, knee-deep for Godzilla in water, you can still see exactly what's happening every moment, and the humans are running around and trying to avoid things and all of that around them. Uh, very well choreographed for that. The mistake I made was I didn't stay for the end sequence, the post credit sequence, which sets this up quite nicely in a particular franchise, which is kind of cool and which I wish I had have seen. I'm going to wait until I can see it on YouTube. I know what happens in the post credit sequence, but I'm a bit pissed off I didn't know about it and didn't stick around for it. Nonetheless, lesson learned. Uh, I, I liked it. And I know a lot of people who really love it, um, particularly Rob Hood, who's my um, main kaiju guy. I've had Rob on Martian Drive-In Podcast, and I do want to get him on again. He's really good value, and he's a lovely person. So um, that, that's pretty much all I've seen over the last two weeks of learning about YouTube. Anyway, I'm going to take a break now. When we get back, I'm going to talk about All the King's Men the Oscar-winning role for Broderick Crawford, based on uh, Louisiana politician Huey Long. It really is a good political film, which, like all good political films of the past, does have one or two things to say about current politics. Traveling abroad in a continental style It's my belief one must attempt to be discreet And subsequently bear in mind your transient position Allows you a perspective that's unique Though you'll find your itinerary 
a blessing and a curse. Your wanderlust won't let you settle down. And you wonder how you ever fathom that you'd be content to stay within the city limits of a small Midwestern town. Most vagabonds I know don't ever want to find the culprit that remains the object of their long relentless quest. The obsessions in the chasing, not the apprehending, the pursuit you see and never the rest. Without fear of contradiction, Bon Voyage is always hallowed in conjunction with the handkerchief from shore by a girl who drives a rambler, and furthermore, it's overly concerned that she won't see him anymore. Planes and trains. And boats and buses characteristically evoke a common attitude of blue. Unless you have a suitcase and a ticket and a passport and the cargo that they're carrying. Foreign affair, juxtaposed with a state sign and domestically approved romantic fancy, is mysteriously attractive due to circumstances. Knowing it will only be parlayed into a mess. That, of course, was Tom Waits with Foreign Affairs, one of my favourite Tom Waits songs. All the Kingsmen's in 1949 Columbia Motion Picture, directed and written by Robert Rosen, who a little over a decade later wrote The Hustler as well and directed The Hustler. So you know you're in good company with this one. It stars Broderick Crawford as Willie Stark, a an equivalent of the real-life political character in 1920s and 1930s Louisiana, Huey Long. Um, we also have John Ireland playing Jack Burden, a journalist of um, wealthy background, who becomes uh, the investigator for Willie Stark. Then we have uh, Mercedes McCambridge playing his political minder and later mistress Sadie. Then we also have Joanne Drew playing um, a sort of fiancé to the John Ireland, Jack Burden character. Her name is Anne Stanton. 
And we have John Derrick playing the stepson of Willie Stark, Tom, Tom Stark. There are a whole bunch of other good character actors in here. There's Shepard Strudwick playing Adam Stanton, a doctor. Um, Anne Seymour plays Mrs. Lucy Stark, the wife of Willie Stark. Anne Seymour had an incredibly long career as an actor. She was um, in all sorts of things. Uh, let's see. Her career went all the way up to 1988 with Field of Dreams, which was her last picture, that one with Kevin Costner, Burt Lancaster, and a cornfield in it. So the um, the ensemble is pretty damn good in this one, and it works really well. It's got a lot of energy at the start. It um, It's a kind of a little bit vague about which state this takes place in. None of the people seem to have southern accents. So even though it is based on the life of Huey Long, it isn't really set in the South. It's based on a 1944 novel by Robert Penn Warren uh, called, of course, All the King's Men. And it got Broderick Crawford a Best Actor Oscar as well. And to be honest with you, it was well-deserved. Crawford is fantastic as Willie Stark. He starts out as a young, idealistic, self-educated man who works his way up to getting a law degree and keeps running for public office in his home county uh, against the local political machine. Eventually, um, the incumbent governor of the state decides to run a dummy candidate in opposition to himself and decides that Willie Stark's the man to do it. So he arranges a political machine for Willie Stark and gets him to make really boring speeches about economics around the town, or around the state, sorry, in order to um, keep the Democratic Party low so that the incumbent governor can get in again. At one stage, um, Jack, Bur uh, yeah, Jack Burton and Sadie tell Willie what's happening, get him drunk, Sadie fucks him, even though this is kind of off screen, and he goes off script and starts telling the truth to the people of the state and it becomes an immense political movement in the state. I'll just play you the trailer now and then I'll talk a bit more about why this is a really interesting film. The Pulitzer Prize novel becomes a vital, very great motion picture. The story of a ruthless big shot, Willie Stark. And for the last time, I tell you that nobody, do you hear me? Nobody will tell me how to run this state. His manners, his morals, and his women. If I get a divorce... Maybe we'd better stop seeing each other. No. No, we won't stop seeing each other, will we? No. Willie's got big ideas, Jack. What do you mean? A girl like that could be a governor's wife or even a president's. What are you talking about? He ditched Lucy, he ditched me, and he'll ditch you. Answer me! All the fascinating characters from the novel come alive. Tom Stark, the big shot son, who went for the girls. Jack Burden, Tiny Duffy, Adam Stanton, who believed in a sister's honor. And Sugar Boy, with that 38 under his armpit. Now listen to me, you hicks. Yeah, you're hicks too, and they fooled you a thousand times, just like they fooled me. I'm going to stay in this race. I'm on my own, and I'm out for blood. Jack Burden. Willie Stark's hatchet man. I asked you, how did you find out? You know, Judge, dirt's a funny thing. Some of it rubs off on everybody. If Adam finds out, it'll be easy to prove a Stanton is no different than anyone else. Willie was right. Man is conceived in sin and born in corruption. 
There's no God but Willie Stark. I'm his prophet and you're his... Gamblers and crooks fought for his favor, but a fearless few risked ruin to destroy him. Be it resolved by the House of Representatives in open session convened that said Willie Stark be, and he is hereby impeached. parallels between Willie Stark and Huey Long are pretty um, close. Uh, Both of them uh, built hospitals and schools in the state. Uh, Huey Long had a free school textbook program, which was kind of controversial. It's a little silly to think now that that would be controversial, but it was. He was about redistributing the wealth. He went on from becoming the governor of Louisiana to becoming a U.S. senator at one stage and continue with his Share the Wealth program. And uh, nonetheless, even though he did move on to federal politics, he kept an eye and grip on the state of Louisiana as well through some proxies he had. as He had a proxy guy as state governor and um, passed a whole bunch of legislation with no discussion through the state parliament or the state you know, government uh, in order to get his own way with things. He, he did a lot of good things, which is the interesting dichotomy about both Willie Stark and Huey Long. The aims at the start are really good to bring people out of poverty, to build state infrastructure, to increase the number of schools and hospitals, to stop corruption in the building of public buildings. In fact, one of the scenes in the movie is a shoddily built school uh, with some shoddily built fire stairs which resulted in the deaths of 12 children as the fire stairs collapsed during a fire drill. So you've got all of those kind of aspects of things rolling into us kind of liking the character of Willie Stark at the start. But he's he's an interesting character because, apart from Broderick Crawford being brilliant and being given some great speeches to make, and speeches which resonate very strongly even with a modern audience, in spite of that, the whole thing comes down to, and this this is a silly simplification of the movie because the movie is very good Willie Stark is a mean drunk when once he gets a taste for alcohol which his wife played by Anne Seymour doesn't approve of once he starts drinking and becoming an alcoholic his entire character and demeanor change he becomes self-involved he has affairs first with Sadie and then later on with the Joanne Drew character who um John Ireland is in love with John Ireland's character Jack Burden is in love with with whom they um, he was engaged but she attracted to the kind of charisma and power of Willie Stark starts an affair with him behind uh, Jack Burden's back so there's a kind of love quadrangle there there's Sadie and Willie Stark and Jack and the Joanne Drew character and Stanton which kind of makes for an interesting dynamic, apart from all the politics and that, it kind of grounds it in the personalities involved. And having Jack Burden as a part of the old moneyed classes in Louis- or in the state, it's not actually Louisiana, that's the um, Huey Long state. But um, you get that kind of cross-currents of rich versus poor, wealthy versus um, educated versus uneducated, um, 
the up and coming brash, uneducated, unschooled Willie Stark versus the old moneyed classes, even though some of them are honourable people, particularly Shepard Strodok's character, the Doctor, are people of principle right up until fairly late in the movie. And um, you, you do get those sort of economies, and these are the issues that are, are current as well. You can make so many parallels between the rise of, say, a Trump and the rise of Willie Stark slash Huey Long. You get somebody with a public profile, somebody who um, says the things that poor people want to hear and then um, does what he wants and is basically up for himself. Now, Willie Stark doesn't start out like that as a character, but as time goes on, as he becomes addicted to both power and alcohol, his nature changes and he starts becoming a dictator. He's got um, armed policemen with machine guns around him. Um, he, the, anybody who um, defies him or is a political opponent to him, he'll get them with blackmail material or intimidation or, in one case, murder. He, he's basically, you know, he, he says that he wants power for the people, but what he actually wants is power for Willie Stark after a certain time. I mean, he's, um, he's got a motto that you see up everywhere during the film. My study is the heart of the people. And his study is the heart of the people, but the reason he's studying changes over the arc of the movie. He really does become a different person during the course of the film. And that's really interesting the way that uh, Broderick Crawford plays it. The early idealistic Willie Stark we understand and like. And as he grows in power and grows in influence and grows in eloquence as well, he really does um, become a mesmerizing but totally repugnant character. And that's a really nice arc. Uh, Robert Rosen films a film in a lot of cases on location, which is always a nice thing. But there's an almost documentary feel to some of the crowd scenes, even though the positioning of the camera and the way it's angled show the crowds aren't quite as big as um, the movie posits them to be. It's done very well, and I was actually watching for it. It's one of those things in crowd scenes in movies. You watch for the way they're positioning a camera. These days you can just do it with CG. You can have a billion people in front of a stage if you want to using CG. But what they did was um, having the person speaking, usually Willie Stark, in the foreground, then having an oblique angle across a town square to a crowd of people in the mid-distance with the camera, the bottom of the camera's view above the crowd that um, you think is closer in, you get this impression that the crowd is very large when it actually isn't. And Robert Rosen does that very well in a number of occasions. He does give you a strong feel for the size of the crowd without actually having a crowd of people there. And then they'll cut from one of those long shots where you see the people in the great distance down to a shot of the people just down below the stage, usually including some of the major players in the film. And it works really well to kind of give that impression. Uh, there's a lot of scenes in the country, on country roads and things like that. And in farms, uh, there's a couple of really nice montages of campaigning where will he start campaigns He's talking to a guy who's got a mule pull plough and he's walking alongside the guy who's doing the ploughing and talking to him. Things like that. They're, it's a really beautifully made film. For 1949, it's a very advanced film too. Political films of a certain kind in 1949 didn't play particularly well. 
people were tired of politics after the war and political movies were a little more difficult to get through. But uh, this feels a lot like a 1930s Warner Brothers movie because in the 1930s, Warner Brothers was the people's studio. It was a working class studio. It's a studio that brought us people like Bogart with those kind of working class faces, even though Bogart wasn't working class, he had a working class face. And um, all the King's Men has very much a feel of a Warner Brothers movie from an earlier time without being necessarily dated. Uh, it's a little more adult in its relationships, for instance. The secondary characters are kind of interesting. Uh, the Jack Burden character is somebody who doesn't like coming from a wealthy background. He decides to take a job as a journalist rather than getting a professional job, a lawyer, a doctor, or something along those lines. And he's willing to give it up um, at one stage to uh, travel around. He, he quits his job. He kind of goes wandering around until he re-meets Willie Stark, just as Stark becomes governor and becomes a kind of hatchet man for him in order to make money. He's a person full of self-loathing as a character. And yet um, he continues to support and empower Stark by keeping the little book with all of the blackmail material and all the details on political friends and foes. He does the investigation into um, a judge who's um, a family friend who uh, Willie Stark needs to do certain things for him during the movie. And he spends a lot of time digging up dirt on this man and eventually finds it to tragic um, circumstances at the end of it. So it's really, a, um, this film, it's a powerful political movie. You, it's an, in a continuum with other films I've talked about in the podcast. A Face in the Crowd, for instance. Um, you can see a lot of parallels between All the King's Men and The Face in the Crowd. Joanne Drew's, Drew is pretty good in the movie too, playing Anne. She's a character who eventually becomes almost an evangelist for Willie Stark. She gets mesmerized by the man. Now, Joanne Drew, I talked about when I did the podcast about Sylvia, the movie um, with Alyssa. Joanne Drew played one of the characters in that. And this would have been 15 years later, after All the King's Men. And again, she's a, a very fine actress. Uh, she has a sense of her own dignity as an actor, which I kind of liked. And having uh, her character arc is a downward one. And she plays that really well, even though she's not given, you know, the character isn't as written as fully as some of the other characters in the movie, which was often the case with uh, female characters, unfortunately, in this kind of film. She really does commit to it, and she really does a nice job of it. And I think she's a very underrated actor as well. Uh, John Ireland, um, he always played kind of characters who seem strong uh, at first and, and have their weaknesses and their vulnerabilities. He was never a kind of top-range actor, but in this one, he's quite good. Uh, the minor characters also are also kind of interesting. There's some character, there's some familiar faces in there, which is really kind of cool. Walter Burke playing Sugar Boy, one of the cronies of Willie Stark. Mercedes um, of Cambridge, who we know from things like Johnny Guitar, she played the antagonist in Johnny Guitar, and also did the voice of Regan during the possession in The Exorcist, for instance. Again, an, another very um, underrated actor, which is kind of cool. And a comedic actor. We know mostly from comedies. 
Paul Ford turns up as a leader of the state opposition in the Senate. And uh, he, this is a kind of early dramatic role for Paul Ford and having him pop up there when we know him from things like Sergeant Bilko playing a, a comedic uh, camp, uh, a captain in the army. In this one, with him playing a serious role, he does quite a good job on it as well. Now, one of the curious things I found out about this movie was Robert Rosen originally offered the role to John Wayne, who found the proposed film unpatriotic, and he indignantly refused the part. Broderick Crawford eventually got it and won the Academy Awards, which um, was ironic because he beat John Wayne, who had been nominated for The Sands of Iwo Jima. Um, yeah, let's see. The film was shot at various locations. I'm reading from Wikipedia now shot in various locations in California using local residents, something that was quite unknown at Hollywood at the time. Uh, in Stockton, they built, uh, the, they used a courthouse in um, Stockton in California. And, um, yeah, they, they kind of, um, it does have the, it really is enriched by that location shooting. Uh, that was a weird thing about a lot of Hollywood films at the time. Even though it wasn't far to go to some really good locations, so much of Hollywood was filmed on sound stages in studios when the movies would have been enriched and it wouldn't have cost too much more to actually go out on uh, locations in regional areas around Los Angeles at the time and film them. I mean, if you have a look at movies in the 1950s, stuff like um, the, well, I'll use my favourite example, the Barbetica Renoff Scott movies, which were filmed around the Alabama Hills, kind of east of L.A., uh, beautiful western countryside um, even places like Vasquez Rocks aren't very far from LA really but studios so very infrequently use them uh, much to the detriment of the films I, I really liked it um, the re critical reception was very positive about the film it really was acclaimed uh, let's see what we got there um, William Brogdon a critic said Brody Crawford, about Broderick Crawford as a rural Abe Lincoln springing up from the soil to make himself a great man by using the opinionless follow-the-leader instincts of the common voter, Broderick Crawford does a standout performance. Given a meaty part, his histrionic bent wraps it up for a great personal success, adding much to the many worthwhile aspects of the drama. And it really does work. Uh, some people have even said that this movie is a film noir which I can kind of see. Film noir is not usually a genre that we associate with politics, but I think it's valid. Um, let's see what they say. Joel Goldberg, a film critic, um, kind of is the person who mentioned it as film noir. He says, The plot makes sense. The dialogue is memorable. The story arises from the passions and ideas of the characters. It deals with graft corruption, love, drink, and betrayal, and the subversion of idealism by power. And it might even make someone angry. Story moves towards its conclusion with the dark inevitability of a film noir. And yeah, I, I can see that. Um, it's not something I thought of, but I can definitely say that yeah, if you want to look at this film as a noir, uh, it's not a, something that I'd argue against. I really think that it can work as that. What I see it in is a continuum of political dramas in America, of America asking questions of itself and answering them with various degrees of success. There, um, there are a whole bunch of political movies. There's a really nice one with Spencer Tracy called The Last Hurrah, which I really should do in a future podcast. I hear from a lot of people, particularly on social media, that they're sick of politics and they hate political comments on social media and all of that kind of thing. But 
in a weird sense, politics is a drama that we're all immersed in, whether we want it to want to be or not. You can't really avoid it. Uh, if even if you go off and live in a log cabin with a solar panel and uh, you're at the same water supply, by running away from politics and hiding up in a shack, you're acknowledging the power of politics in a sense, and that's kind of interesting as well. Um, we are political animals, and politics are increasingly having an effect on our lives. In fact, here in Australia, Western Australia, over on the other side of the continent, is having a state election today, and that's going to be an interesting little drama in itself. There are demagogue parties like One Nation involved, which may grab some more power. It looks like the conservative Liberal Party government in WA is going to get killed by the Labor Party government. It'll come in. Um, yeah, these dramas play out around and within us and through us. And they never don't have an effect on us. If it's something locally political, whether it be on a state, national, town or international level, inevitably it'll have some impact on you. And just denying it and saying you don't believe in it and you're sick of it isn't going to change that. Uh, politics is interesting for me. And the movies like this I really like, even though I, I've seen the movie before and I know the story arc, just the power of words and the power of ideas conveyed to a mass audience is um, a wonderful and dangerous and um, empowering thing at times. Uh, compare the speeches of someone like Barack Obama to the ones of, say, someone like Donald Trump and the eloquence and the ideas that Obama brought compared to the simplistic, very basic vocabulary of a Trump, and yet Trump prevailed. Uh, politics is endlessly interesting, and movies about politics are endlessly interesting if they're done right. And All the King's Men is one of those movies. It was made, remade again in 2006 by um, Sean Penn. I prefer this version to the 2006 version. 2006 version is an okay film. It's a fine film. But this one, I think, has a lot more raw power and um, a much more interesting protagonist. I think that there's room also if somebody wanted to, and, and it may never happen, but if somebody wanted to actually tell the true story of Huey Long, that'd be interesting too. Huey Long was a monster in a lot of ways. He was a socialist dictator in a weird kind of way. He did all sorts of horrible things as well. He was arrested once while he was governor of Louisiana because there was a queue to go to the men's room and he was sick of waiting, so he pissed on someone's leg and got arrested for pissing on the guy's leg. All sorts of things. He got um, arrested for um, basically being in a brothel in <laughs> New Orleans. Uh, and yet he, he built schools and highways and infrastructure and roads and got textbooks to all the kids. He did an adult literacy program in Louisiana that taught 100,000 grown-ups to read, and yet he was still a monster. But anyway, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up for um, All the King's Men now. If you haven't seen the film, see it. It really is worth uh, viewing, and it's got powerful performances, interesting characters, and it has something to say while it entertains you, so you can't really lose with that. Anyway, I'm going to take a break now. When I get back, going to talk about a very different political world in 1970s Washington with All the President's Men, directed by Alan J. Pakula, with a script written by William Goldman, one of the script writers, Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, all those other things, Princess Bride amongst others. 
and starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. I found my love in Avalon beside the bay. I left my love in Avalon and sailed away. I dream of him and Avalon from dusk till dawn. And so I think I'll travel on to Avalon. I found my love in Avalon. I left Beside the bay Left my love in Avalon Sailed away I dream of him in Avalon From dusk till dawn So I think I'll travel on To Avalon Gotta get my coat Gonna take a boat Okay, you're a film buff. I know you're a film buff because you're listening to this podcast. Now, if you haven't read William Goldman's Adventures in the Screen Trade, you need to do it. It's a really interesting book about Hollywood, done by an insider, a screenwriter, not by a star, not by a director, but by a screenwriter, the person who thinks up the ideas and then puts the words against them. All the President's Men, of all the movies William Goldman made, there's some were successful, some weren't. He said this is the one he wouldn't touch again with a barge pole had he had the time to do it over. Now, there's some problems with it uh, at the time. 1974, they started working on the movie. 1976, it came out. The problems were everybody was over Watergate. America, in particular was over Watergate. It had been part of their political lives and part of the news narrative for a very long time, for a couple of years. And so people were over it. Um, the other thing was that it wasn't really a movie narrative to the book of all the President's Men that Woodward and Bernstein put out because it was about journalism and about doing a good job in journalism. And also the problem was these guys fucked up a couple of times. They made mistakes. They um, published articles and got slapped down for them. Um, they were backed up by their uh, editor, Bed Bradley, played by Jason Robards in the movie, but they didn't do things right all the time. Now, there were, there were enormous problem, problems creating a script about this. First off, Robert Redford, one of the stars, was also a producer, so he had a lot more clout than a star normally has. He had two possibilities for playing uh, Carl Bernstein, the other journalist who broke the Watergate story, along with Bob Woodward, who Redford would play. 
They had two people in mind. First one was Al Pacino. The second one was Dustin Hoffman. And the movie was very precarious at the start because if they couldn't get either of those actors, they couldn't make the movie. They needed somebody of star value to balance Redford because Redford was a big star at the time. And if they couldn't get Pacino or um, Hoffman, the movie was dead in the water. The other thing was that Carl Bernstein, one of the two journalists, was in a relationship with Nora Ephron, the writer. And halfway through the process of William Goldman writing the script for All the President's Men, Carl Bernstein and Nora Ephron wrote a script of their own. And Redford had a meeting with uh, Bernstein, Redford, Woodward and Nora Ephron in a room with William Goldman and suggested that Goldman take a look at the Bernstein-Ephron script and see if there was anything they could use in it. Now, Goldman then did something really interesting. He was pissed off, and he says so in the book. He was very pissed off about it. But the interesting thing he did was he said, no, I can't look at that script until I talk to my lawyers, because if I look at the script and there's anything at all in that script that I use in all of the stuff I'm writing, then they get a co-writer credit, and I get to give away some of my work for not too much. And so he declined to do that. Nonetheless, the movie got made. Somehow the movie got made. And the way it got made was that Goldman basically threw away the second half of the book because he he ended at a point where the journalists had actually fucked up. They'd got something wrong and they were being hammered for it just around the time Richard Nixon, the president who was involved in the Watergate scandal, was re-elected. So Goldman did the clever and, and quite risky thing of ending the script at that point and then just having a crawl at the bottom saying all the people who were arrested and that Richard Nixon was forced to resign because of the Watergate scandal. Everybody knew that anyway. This is like three years after the um, thing broke in real life. So everybody was fully familiar with that. And so he decided to end the film in a beautiful shot too, by the way. The um, cinematographer working with the director, Alan J. Pakula, was Gordon Willis. And Gordon Willis was a big fan of the split diopter. That's a special lens you have on the camera where you can have, say, the left-hand side of the film with the stuff in the foreground in focus and the right-hand side of the shot with things further back in focus. That's a split diopter. The the focal lengths are different on different sides of the um, screen because of this special lens. And there's a nice shot at the end where you see Nixon at the time of his re-election on the left-hand side of the screen. And you see Woodward and Bernstein typing madly on their electric typewriters in the Washington Post office to continue the story after they'd just been smacked down for getting their facts wrong in one instance. And then they cut to the stuff about who was arrested, who had to leave office, um, how much um, time in jail a number of the perpetrators did. And, And that's kind of an interesting approach to take. Um, the movie that ends right it it really does work right but um, before I get too much further into it and I'm enthusiastic about this one I really am I will play the trailer for uh, All the President's Men
going to Unit 2. What? We're home. Base 1 to Unit 1. Base 1 to Unit 1. Hold it, you mother! Hold it! Police! There's been a break in at Democratic headquarters. And they were bugging the place. What murder? Bernstein, you're both on the story now. Don't get out. Redford. I'm Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Mr. Markham, are you here in connection with the Watergate burglary? I'm not here. Hoffman. Hi, uh, this is Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post, and I was just wondering if you can remember... All the President's Men. The story of the two young reporters who cracked the Watergate conspiracy. White House. Howard Hunt, please. He might be in Mr. Colson's office. Who's Charles Colson? Did you know, uh, Howard Hunt? Well, the White House said he was doing some investigative work. What do you say? They stumbled into Leeds. Certainly it comes as no surprise to you that Howard was with the CIA. No, no surprise at all. They tripped over clues. We'd like to see all the material requested by the White House. All White House transactions are confidential. This whole thing is a cover-up. It's right on our nose. And piece by piece, they solve the greatest detective story in American history. There is no way the White House can control the investigation. I, I don't want to say anymore, okay? Have you been threatened if you tell the truth? Is there a cover-up? Don't you understand what you're on to? Mitchell knew? Of course, Mitchell knew. Woodward! Bernstein! Get in here! At times, it looked as if it might cost them their jobs. You guys are about to write a story that says the former attorney general, the highest-ranking law enforcement officer in this country, is a crook. Their reputations. Why is the Post trying to do it? I don't know. Perhaps even their lives. This movie is still shown to uh, first-year journalism students as well. And if I were doing, say, a double feature, I'd do this with the 2015 film Spotlight because I think they're very much similar and they very much show journalists as heroes and journalists as important parts of our culture and our society. And that's definitely the case in here. The supporting cast, too, I really should talk about the supporting cast in this movie because I like them a lot. I've got a lot of love for the supporting cast of all the President's Men. You've got, of course, the, the big star, the supporting cast member in this one, is um, Jason Robards as Ben Bradley, the real-life editor of the Washington Post. He's quite good in it as well. You've got Jack Warden in there playing Harry Rosenfeld. Uh, Jack Warden's... The guy, Harry Rosenfeld, that Jack Warden plays in this, um, they really couldn't use too much of what Harry Rosenfeld really said because William Goldman had a meeting with Harry Rosenfeld amongst other people in the offices of the Washington Post and Harry Rosenfeld was a hilariously funny man everything he said was hilarious he would tear chunks out of people in the most amusing way possible and it really wasn't possible to use a lot of Rosenfeld's real life character in the movie because it would unbalance the, this movie a lot uh, it'd make it more of a comedy so Jack Warden does a really nice job of it. Jack Warden, a great character actor, did a whole bunch of episodic TV. Uh, I remember him in The Wackiest Ship in the Army in the 1960s, amongst other things. Good character actor. Martin Balsam's in there playing um, Howard Simons. 
Hal Holbrook as Deep Throat. Deep Throat was the um, inside man who gave Woodward and Bernstein information. It's only um, years later people found out, in this century, not in the last century, they actually found out who Deep Throat was. And Deep Throat was actually, and I'm trying to find my note on this, so excuse me while I rustle pages because... It really is kind of interesting. W. Mark Felt is the guy who was actually Deep Throat, the inside man who fed little bits of information to Woodward and Bernstein. W. Mark Felt, who oddly enough looked a bit like Hal Holbrook, was actually the second in charge of the FBI at the time, and he leaked information. He knew this shit was going down. He knew that the Republican Party, through the committee to re-elect the president, had broken into the... Watergate Hotel and planned to bug the Democratic National Convention head's office. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he kind of helped democracy and helped the truth come out in his own sweet way. He's in his 90s when he finally confessed to who he was. And he was backed up um, by Woodward and Bernstein on that. But uh, yeah, interesting guy. And it's amazing how people, how information gets out when things unknown to be wrong and things are known to be inaccurate um there's that internet meme now that information wants to be free and it's a movie and a, a story like all the president's men that actually backs it up there are some other good character actors in there there's a scene with ned Beatty, which everyone loves a good scene with ned Beatty in there stephen collins playing one of the um people involved in the money side of the conspiracy stephen collins an actor people know from star trek the motion picture and who later on um, confessed to being a pedophile, but we'll step aside from that. Uh, Sally Aitken, one of the um, people involved in the Washington Post, um, based on a character called Marilyn Berger, is played by Penny Fuller. Really nice character actor, Penny Fuller. Long career on stage, long career in movies and television as well. Penny Fuller starred on Broadway with Robert Redford in the 1960s in the original stage production of Barefoot in the Park. Um, there are other people in there. Lindsay Krauss turns up as one of the characters. Robert Walden, who people remember from um, Lou Grant, uh, playing Donald Segretti, one of the people involved in the Dirty Tricks part of the Republican Party at the time. Uh, Richard Hurd turns up in there. Let's see who else. Polly Holiday uh, playing a secretary in there as well. James Caron is in there. All these fantastic character actors. Um, Jane Alexander, of course, is in there as well playing Judy Holbeck. Uh, there's a really interesting scene between Jane Alexander and Dustin Hoffman where she's reluctantly giving him information in her apartment. The weird thing about that was it was filmed in the actual apartment where the original conversation took place. So they used as much factual information as possible. In fact, that's one of the problems that William Goldman said about making this movie. You couldn't fuck around with the facts. Everybody knew them. Everybody read the book or they'd seen the Washington Post article or they'd seen it all on television. You couldn't play fast and loose with the facts. And there were so many people involved in this conspiracy to corrupt the election of the president. Ultimately, of course, Nixon won, but it didn't uh, serve him well long term. But um, there were so many names involved and so many people involved and so much to and froing. It was really hard to make a cohesive script out of this. It really wasn't the sort of material that led itself to a natural, you know, three-act structure of a movie. 
there, it really doesn't play like that at all. Uh, it, it plays like a, uh, almost like a private eye movie in a sense, where you've got to find out things. But a lot of the things you're finding out aren't going down interviewing people and then getting hit on the back of the head and waking up in your car with alcohol poured over you and a cop shining a flashlight in your eye. Isn't that kind of detective work? Um, the really interesting thing is you see a lot of stuff like you know, they've got to find out who one guy is, a guy called Dahlberg. His name turns up in some of the research they do. So they've got to find out who Dahlberg is. These days you'd do a quick Google search and you'd have his name and all of his details and everything about him, including his family holiday snaps with a Google search. In this one, you see Woodward, played by Redford, going through phone books to find out who Howard um, Dahlberg is. I think it's Howard Dahlberg. Um, but anyway, his name's Dahlberg. Um, and he has to go through phone books all across America. And it's only when somebody finds a picture of Dahlberg in the clipping archive at the Washington Post does he narrow it down to a particular city. And he gets a bit of crucial, crucial information from that. Journalism used to be a lot harder than it is now. There's uh, a whole bunch of information they need to get from the White House, so they go to where the archive is and wade through reams and reams of little notes um, Wood and Bernstein just sit in this room going through thousands of little pieces of paper to find out one piece of information which isn't there anyway um, journalism used to be a lot harder and, and a lot um, more rigorous and what, you know, it's great now that information is a lot more accessible That's fully, I'm fully on board with that but you can see why in the old days journalism wasn't done on a 24-hour news cycle, apart from the fact there wasn't a 24-hour news cycle. It couldn't be. Just getting the information together and finding the facts and piecing things together and just finding where a person lived and who they were and what their phone number was and where they fitted into the structure of Washington politics and, and in general terms, American politics was a non-trivial task in those days. It took a lot of work to find this shit out and that was one of the reasons why it took so long for the um, Watergate cover-up to be revealed apart from the fact that people were very reluctant to talk um, just finding out who to talk to was a big task and this movie portrays that part of 20th century journalism really well um, and one of the other things I like too about the you know, Gordon Willis Alan J. Pakula side of it is you've got a contrast between the places where Woodward and Bernstein go to investigate, which are all usually shadowy, shadowy and not well lit for the most part, and the brightly lit neon lights you've got at the Washington Post. Washington Post is all for enlightenment, so you see it in a big, big long, well-lit office. They use a little bit of forced perspective where the desk gets smaller and smaller the further they go down there to make the room look bigger than it actually was. But nonetheless, it's brightly lit, and you know, the actors are well lit, but when they go out and investigate things, or when they go into someone's house, or when they're walking the streets, it's usually at night, and none of it is brightly lit. And that's kind of interesting. Subconsciously, it shows us that the people, the journalists in the journalistic offices, where they're discussing with Ben Bradley, and um, Harry Rosenfeld, and Howard Simons, about how they're going to go about things, and whether they've got enough information. One of the interesting things about Bradley there is that he um, really does push them to 
make sure they've got everything perfect. They, you know, the, your story's not strong enough. Go out and find some more information. Get us another independent source. Get three sources for everything. All that stuff that Ben Bradley did is a really interesting um, part of journalism. But it's all done in a well-lit room, and I like that. I like the um, the fact that it's you know, that you've got that contrast between the shadowy world of Washington politics and the brightly lit world of journalism, which is trying to shine a light on other things and is portrayed in a brightly lit space. It really does kind of work for me. I really like that. And, uh, of course, I should mention this too. One of the, uh, the catchphrases of the movie, follow the money, doesn't appear in the book or any documentation on Watergate. It's something that was created, I think, by William Goldman, uh, where Deep Throat tells Woodward, follow the money and find out, you know, use that as your way into investigating who these people are and why they did what they did and why the Watergate burglars broke in and, um, and you know, started planting bugs in the DNC national headquarters. So that, um, you know, that kind of, that just saying follow the money really does lead us into the next part of the film very well. Uh, there's a couple of other people in there that are interesting. F. Murray Abraham turns up as well, which is kind of interesting. Though I missed him when I watched the movie. I must have blinked and missed him in that one. But um, just to kind of wrap up all the President's Men, it's a historical movie now. And, uh, yeah, just watching those enormous electric typewriters with people pounding on them and the way journalism was done before um, before the uh, Internet Revolution was kind of interesting. And also one of the um, things about this that I found out, that I found really interesting is, there were paper trails on things. There were checks you could follow and, and things like that. Whereas these days, with everything online, um, you know, you can destroy data, you can destroy information, but these physical artifacts of transactions are the reason why the Watergate burglars and the Watergate conspiracy was found out. Having that paper trail was important to the investigation and important to the revelations. These days, scrubbing information and you know, deleting emails and all that kind of thing means that that part of journalism, that part of investigation is a lot more difficult. So even though we do have greater access to information, we have greater ability to delete it as well in some ways, and that, of course, causes problems. Um, the other part of it, of course, is that this is a simpler past. These days, the things that Nixon was impeached for are things that Trump would just shrug off and ignore. And that in itself is a worrisome thing. It's um, In those days, integrity, truth, and um, honesty were considered important, even though they weren't always practiced, of course, in Washington. They were considered very important and were enough to get a president to resign. And uh, thinking through that, I'm just wondering what would be enough to get the current incumbent US president to resign. And I can't see anything. And that in itself makes this movie a kind of artifact of a more simple past, in a sense. Which is a sad thing, and it's an optimistic thing. I think that uh, that past is an honourable one in some ways. Even though there were these conspirators and these nasty pricks and all of that kind of thing, journalists could still find out the truth. And when they did, it mattered. It made a difference. It moved Washington on its axis. And that's kind of interesting, and that's kind of um, where I'd like to leave all the president's men. 
So that's about it for this time around. Thank you for listening. Thank you, of course, to the Patreon subscribers who are wonderful people, everyone, and I hope they all get laid and stay happy. Um, yeah, of course, there are the two Kerries who support the podcast and who aren't yet on the credits for the podcast. I apologize again. Nonetheless, uh, thank you for listening. And as usual, I'm going to end the podcast with the credits for the Patreon subscribers, wonderful people, one and all, in this style of movie credits. Thanks, and I'll be back in two weeks with a Paleo Cinema podcast in one week with a Martian drive-in. Take care, and take a look at the Paleo Cinema YouTube page, please. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers, and here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, our caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, our script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, the location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, our donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve, our script doctor, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Carrie, our second script doctor, Richard, our set photographer, and our extras, Kathleen, Mark, and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects, and Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers, and you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema.